From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they'd always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be, right here, right now. Here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Linda Franklin, and we're talking today about feelings and emotions, and Linda and I have a lot of discussions, and we brought on Dr. Mark Borg because I get confused between what's a feeling, what's an emotion, and does it matter? Now, Linda, you have a really good point of view on this. Well, I don't know if it's a correct point of view, but it, it, I, it, but this is the way it, I think feelings are more surface and emotions are, are deeper. Like a feeling is, gee, what, that pizza was so great. Or, you know, I feel happy today. But if happiness is a feeling, then joy is an emotion. It's kind of a deeper, I can live in joy. It's kind of a deeper feeling. It, it, that's inside of me that I bring to the table, but I think a feeling is more fleeting. Mm. And that's the way I see it. I don't know if that's right, wrong, but again, that's, you know, that's, that's been working for me. So Mark, what do you say? Like, what, and what does it matter whether we talk about a feeling or emotion? I mean, I think most people use them interchangeably. I know yeah. when I try to sound smart, I use the word emotion. And then if I'm just talking like a normal person, I say feeling. So that's the extent of it for me. I love the distinction. I love it. I, I, I guess I don't think a whole lot about what that distinction is. Um, because I was told long, long ago by a very wise mentor of mine that the, something that you two might find really strange, uh, being that I'm a I am a shrink. I'm a psychoanalyst. I'm a psychologist. I am the person that the stereotype of me says, what? How do you feel, right? That's what, that's what the stereotype of me says. However, I was told about 23 years ago by Philip Bromberg, who's this incredible psychoanalyst who just passed away last year. Um, I was told never, never, ever, 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 ever ask a patient, how do you feel? Why? Because he said that when you say, how do you feel, what happens is you put the person, the client, the patient, the NLSN on the spot, and they immediately shut down and they get all in their head. They get all into their thinking rather than their emotion. What he said instead to ask was, what's that like? And that when you ask somebody what something's like, what they do is they spend the next 45 minutes actually explaining and describing their emotional life rather than trying to label it and nail it down. And I wonder if this really wonderful distinction that you're making, Linda, is kind of like feelings would be that answer to the question, how do you feel? Like, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a, you know, I'll take, I'll take out some kind of a board with a bunch of faces and I'll point to an emoji with a smiley face or a sad <laughs> face or whatever. And I'll think that's how I feel. But I think that's an interesting possibility that that's that surface level. That's that guess, you know, that's that surfacey fleeting, but maybe the 45 minutes of description 
and sharing and expressing and allowing some caring person to hold that expression with you, maybe that could be, could qualify for what you mean by emotion. I, I love thinking about that more expansive uh, definition that I, I, I think you're really kind of adding something novel, Linda, to the, um, <laughs> to the whole theory of emotion. Well, thank you. I just, um, feelings, um, I think feelings are fleeting, mm. but I think the, the emotion that, that we have and we react to things, people, events is, is deeper inside mm. of us. Mm. And I think that we have to bring our emotions more to the surface to mm. examine them so mm. we can understand our behavior. And, yep. re and really, when, you know, when someone touches your butt, you know, pushes your buttons, what is that all about? Yeah. You know, there's something inside of me because it's not because, you know, they didn't put the, the cap back on the toothpaste. That huh. that was a button that, you know, has nothing to do with what's really going on inside. So that's what, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I, I was explaining it to Sandra, but I don't know if I was doing a good job. It just felt that it was, you know, just something deeper. And that's why I, I called the episode that we're doing Emotional Hoarding. Mm, I love it. And I, I think it's really interesting, too, that you um, that you picked that example, because I'm also a couples therapist. I see I see a lot of couples. You know? <laughs> and the first two books that I wrote with, with a couple of colleagues um, were but were about, um, you know, they were about couples dynamics. And um, so you <laughs> you happen to choose an example, the toothpaste cap, that, of course, is one of the emblematic kind of notions, uh, you know, toothpaste caps and toilet seats, which, yes. <laughs> right, which are basically the ways in which these feelings can sometimes just scratch the surface of a deeper emotional issue that goes on unresolved. If it's a toothpaste cap or it's a toilet seat, you're not just talking about, I got a cold butt in the middle of the night. You're talking about this is an expression of my partner's discourtesy and the feeling is deep and deep. The emotion, I should say. Mark and Linda, I'm just going to jump in here for a second and thank our sponsor. Our sponsor is Best Fiends, and they have been with us all year. We love them. We are grateful for them. Um, and if you haven't played Best Fiends yet, you should, because I've been playing it for months and months and months now, and my, my sisters play it, my kids play it. We can all play together and have some really fun competition, even though we're in totally different parts of the world. And what I really like about this game, and you can get it at the Apple App Store or Google Play, and it's called Best Fiends. And so the best way to remember it is friends without the R. And what I really like about it is it gives me a little time away from reality. You kind of get into this cute little musical place with adorable characters, and you can totally feel your blood pressure come down. You can de-stress. You can play it in line. You can play it in the car. Of course, of course, not when you're driving, um, but anywhere you have to wait. And a, a round only takes a couple minutes. So it's really fun to fit it in places. And it just takes you away from everything. And it's free to download. It has literally millions of five-star reviews on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And I wouldn't endorse something that I didn't play, didn't recommend, and allow my kids to play. And there are more levels, events, and challenges added all the time. So there's always one more level. There's 
there's always one more level of fun. So seriously, once you've downloaded Best Fiends, boredom, standing in line, waiting won't stand a chance. So, and if you're worried you're going to get to like a high level, don't. There's over 5,000 levels and counting. So good luck with that. Um, just don't blame me if you end up kind of obsessed with this game, but it is super fun. And when you get to punch the slugs, the slugmageddons, it's actually really cathartic because we can't punch people at work. We can't punch people in our household. At least we're not supposed to. And you can punch these little slugs and then they cheer for you. Like nobody cheers for me when I take out the garbage, but they cheer for me in this game. Um, so download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And, you know, Linda, I'm going to go over to you. Yeah. I froze there for a second, but it's, yeah. So I think it's it, his dealing of being respected yeah. or being listened to. Uh, women yeah. always have an issue of I'm not being heard. Right. And if you say the same thing over and over again, like, hey, that, that toothpaste uh, tube really bugs me or the toilet seat really bugs me or leaving your socks on the floor really bugs me. And they say, yeah, 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 yeah. And it goes on for 10 years doing yeah. this. It's like they're not hearing you and, and we want to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. And using your definition, I think you could, we could also expand it and say that in the moment of the toothpaste cap, you know, sitting there on the, on the sink or the toilet seat, like freezing my butt in the middle of the night, you know, what I think in that moment might be a little, a burst of anger might be a moment of, 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 of hurt, you know, feeling, yeah. feeling, but I think the real treachery of those actions is exactly what you're saying. It's the depth of resentment that goes from being unheard. It's the depth. Cause I believe me, I, they're not always toilet cap seats and they're not always toothpaste caps, but oftentimes by the time a couple is on the screen these days with me in a couple's therapy session, there tend to be these feelings that get expressed here on the screen that then I think go to the deeper emotions that have not been expressed. And I think when you're not, when you're not, feeling heard in a relationship then you're also sort of plunging into the emotion the emotional experience of being isolated of yeah. being you know forlorn of being lost of wondering you know questioning whether or not you made the right decision in the you know or do i matter yeah do i matter absolutely Right. And one of the things that, you know, when you guys bring this up, I, I hark back to my marriage counseling days before my divorce. So spoiler alert, um, was this thing over my keys and you know, you guys, I lose my keys all the time. And I, I, I actually purchased like three sets of car keys so that if one's in my gym bag and it falls to the bottom, there's another in my purse. And then there's one hanging by the hook on the door. And that kept coming up in marriage counseling. And for years, like probably until today's episode, I never understood what the problem was with the keys. Like it's my car. It's not inconveniencing you. I'm not even asking you to look for it, but it must've tapped into some deeper emotion that me losing my keys or having to have three sets of keys. Cause some ones are always missing. It had nothing to do with the keys. Now I don't know what, what the deeper emotion was, but the losing of the keys is like the pen cap or the, the, toothpaste cap or the toilet seat when something is bugging your partner and it's the same thing repetitively how do you know what's you and what's them well i think you're making such a great point and i would even add to the whole question of a feeling and emotion the notion I mean, you really just hit it sandra with the idea that i believe that that 
an emotion, at least in the way I think you're describing it, defining it, is something that it's not, it's, it's almost like the tree falling in the forest, right? The, um, the feeling might be something that I experience, but by the time I think it's an emotion, it is something that's been put into a relationship to be heard. I even think that there is no real expression of emotion if that emotion is not heard and responded to by someone who actually cares. So I think that your example is so wonderful because what I hear, and I don't know the answer, but what I hear in the Lost Keys is something that says, what I would interpret as the equivalent of, I'm not just losing these keys for, for no reason. I'm losing these keys because I want you to come find me. I am lost. I want you to find me. This isn't just like, oh, I'm pulling my hair out, but I'm lost. And so the, the, the so there's the feeling of I'm lost. There's the feeling of like, uh, you know, somehow or other, I, even confusion. I don't know what this means, but if it was met with an open mind and heart by your husband, then that would have been the emotion that said, we have a problem. And if we use these keys as a kind of a bread trail to look at how we are creating the circumstance together, then maybe we can hear what's being said emotionally and, and fix it together. Because nobody right. fixes a couple pro, pro problem on their own. If you're losing your keys had more to do with your marriage than it had to do with something wrong with you, then you could actually allow it to be a couple issue. Well, and be you, oh, go ahead, Linda. But before it's a couple's issue, it's a, it's a me issue. It's that I have to figure out what what's deep inside of me that actually triggers that that response because the partner can't do it because he's not inside of me so I have to do the work to figure out why I I am so touched off by those particular things because it obviously has very little to do with the actual event exactly it's exactly. It, you know so what is that well I would add I, I think you're exactly right I would add the environment context being the relationship itself. And since it seems like the losing of the keys is somehow pertinent to the marriage and to the, to the, uh, to Sandra, to you communicating with your ex-husband, something I would say that the, it will have to stay an issue of simply you losing keys until the environment is safe enough for you to go. Yeah. What is, what is that about me? What do I need? What is this? Like my daughter loses her cell phone. She loses it. And I, my daughter was the sweetest, kindest, gentlest, most outgoing person on the planet until she turned 11. And <laughs> which is about that happened to me at 11, too, my mom will tell you. But, you know, I started saying, like, look, Kata, we need to go in here and find out what you're saying, because if I if, if I if we don't do that, all I'm going to hear it is you're telling me to screw myself. And I'm sure that maybe is part of it. <laughs> if we look at it together, I think it's a deeper issue of her wanting to be found, of her wanting not just to find the phone, but to whatever experience of lostness she's trying to share with me, her very loving father. So we, Kata and I, have gotten to resolve some of this. Sandra, it sounds like you weren't able to resolve this and find out what it was because your relationship didn't really open up to that kind of exploration that, that oh. you could plunge yourself into no it was very much you're you know i'm wrong i'm scatterbrained i'm a mess yeah. you know yeah. all these things but it was funny when you were talking dr mark i thought back to those days you know those days i was driving you know two hours each way to commute to run an office i was yeah. the sole breadwinner from the of the household my ex-husband wasn't working and I had two small, actually I was pregnant with one and had a small child at home and caring for my mom who was dying from cancer. And I think I was 
so spread all over the map, I needed help. Maybe I didn't know how to ask for it. And, you know, that could have been a symptom of why I lose my keys so much. Now, I still lose my keys as a single mother, but I don't <laughs> lose them or my phone, any of that as much as I used to. And that's why it's interesting that you say this thing is maybe it was my way of asking for help. Or even though I didn't know I needed more help, when I look back, I go, duh, of course, no one person can be all things to all these people, carry the financial weight, the parental weight, and be a sandwich person while the ex-husband sits around and does nothing. Um I it couldn't even be a protest, Sandra. It could have even been a protest. Like, I'm done. I'm right. done. I'm not going to work today. I'm not going to the you know, whatever. I'm not going to the office. I'm not going to the radio show. I'm not going to the kitchen. I'm not going to, like, I've thrown these keys away. I'm, I'm taking a day off. Because <laughs> I did. I used to whip them when I was mad. I'd whip them in the bottom of my gym bag. I'd whip them in my office or I would throw them on the counter when I would come in. They'd go skittering over somewhere and maybe fall in a corner, you know, because yeah. I, would, I would find my keys all sorts of really strange places and one time I lost a set of keys so bad that they didn't show up until I cleaned out the garage and they were literally sitting on top of like one of those little Stouffer's little you know frozen meals it was (laughs) like the bug spray I had set that up there put the keys down completely forgot didn't find that you know frozen meal till like a year later um you know, and we laugh about these things and that, you know, and they are funny, you know, and at the time you're so caught up in yeah. Yeah. feelings and emotion That's right. Yeah. that it's hard to disconnect the two. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, looking back, you can look at it. I mean, and again, even the incredible symbology of a key, I mean, just, whoa, what does it open? What does it do? Where am I going? Do I want to go? Am I I, I often think about conflict. I think about ambivalence and I think about ambivalence does not tell me simply that I do or don't want to go. I think ambivalence is tricky because it often tells me that I do and don't want to go. Right. That I do and don't want to continue the marriage. That I do and don't want to go to work or all of these other things. And so and I really appreciate the, the examples very good. And I think even coming back to the incredibly interesting distinction between feeling you know, feeling hurt in the moment and, and, and trying to reaching out for, for care and for acceptance and for love. And then the deeper emotion of feeling lost, you know, that, or abandoned or, ab- or, or alone. Right. Right. Yeah. They're all, they're all very powerful. Mm. Yeah. And then when we get, you know, into that, into that, you know, that circle of crazy, then we, you know, then we, we blame and we point fingers and everything is their fault. And, you know, it, it just leads to a world of unhappiness. Yeah. I think you're making another good point because I, I always find that um, when I'm working with couples, is if it's either your fault or it's mine, if it's either her fault or it's his, we're, get, we're gonna get nowhere. I've, you know, the, 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 it becomes the, the big task that I find in my life right now. I'm actually dealing, I have a couple right now who've been married for 61 years and I'm so impressed. I'm so impressed that they're allowing themselves to continue to explore, you know, the, the contours of their relationship and everything else. And I find that as soon as that relationship goes off the rails into that place where it's either you or me, like we're, we might as well give up the session. The whole task seems to be to come back into this emotional place where we are both feeling safe enough to take responsibility for our contribution to what's going on, bad and good. You know, it's not all like, oh, I'm in mea culpa, you know, I screwed up the whole thing. It's, yeah, here's my contribution to the problem. 
and here is my contribution to its solution. And then I keep my mouth shut and let the other person, if it's safe enough to do so, say the same thing. I'm constantly working to help people create safe enough environments in their relationships so that they can take responsibility for their contributions, bad and good. It's the, it's, it seems a solution to what you were just describing as the blame game, which gets us nowhere. Nowhere. Well, and the funny thing is, Dr. Mark, when I left that marriage and entered into a new relationship, um, the, my relationship partner at the time, who was a very good friend of mine, bought me a key rack at the front door because he's like, Sandy, you're losing your keys all the time. What's going on? And he's like, <laughs> and he bought me this cute little key rack. It's very techy, looks like a tech, like, you know, it's something that I would like. And it made it a pleasure to put my keys back. And I probably have not lost my keys, you know, maybe once or twice. I mean, that, yeah. that happens. I mean, it's normal, but not to the extent that that frenetic lunatic Sandra was losing her keys in those days. And it makes me happy to put that key on the hook. Such a simple little thing, but I think what it was, and it gets to, you know, what Linda was talking about too, is feeling heard. Yeah. or being seen and yeah. instead of blaming me and saying you left the cap off you left the thing up you lose lost your keys again it's like here let me help you find a way to not lose your keys how about that and let, and and do it in a kind even you know kind way that he what he the other you know special secret sauce to all this stuff is not to be a jerk about it <laughs> you know? Like, i know we sometimes like to use a different word i won't <laughs> It is. I mean, it's interesting. You know, do you think some of these wounds, um, you know, like I look at some of the wounds that I've had or my friends have had or my even my ex-husband had as a child um, of not being important, of not being the star. You know, I married an entertainer. So what a shock that one was. Mm -hmm. um, but that those creep up out of us and those are anchored where our emotions are anchored. You know, if we were ignored or abandoned as a little kid, like for me, I was the middle child towards the end lower of the family. So mm -hmm. if I wanted anything, I really had to squawk. You know what I mean? I had to fight for my place in line and things like that. So when I look at it's either an all or nothing for me, either I'm going to be heard and I'm willing to fight for it, or there's no point in it. And so all of those things go into play as an adult, you know, as we make decisions. Do you think that a lot of those childhood wounds are what impacts these relationships? Optimistically, I actually, because I've been, you know, seeing couples for now a couple of decades. Uh, as you know, I've written a couple of books about working with couples and the ways that couples defend themselves in relationship from the very things that we think we're in relationship to get like intimacy and empathy and vulnerability and emotional investment. And what I think, you know, my, my biggest conclusion, at least of the moment, I'm only 20 years into this so far is that, yeah, I mean, we actually, I think optimistically we find our partners partly at least based on the possibility that we do get to repeat some of these old patterns and heal together. But that really means together that it doesn't mean like I get to go into a relationship and I get to be the like messed up one and this relationship will fix me. That's not likely to repeat anything good. You know, I think we both get to come into the relationship whatever our unresolved conflicts, issues, pain, wounds, and we get to create a space where we do get to reenact some of those old patterns and we get to do it in a way that can break 
the destructive pathological patterns and create something novel together. What do you do if your spouse doesn't want to, has no interest? It's like, eh, this is the way it was. This is the way I am. This is what you get. You know what you got when you married me. Like, I think it depends. I think it depends on maybe we can use this kind of interesting heuristic of um, feelings and emotions. We can say maybe that statement or those statements in some marriages, not all, in some marriages, maybe those statements are just the reluctance and the fear and the hopelessness and the helplessness. And maybe that's somewhere at the surface, but maybe there's more emotional life in a marriage underneath that, that even though I don't want to, and even though I want to believe it's all your fault, and even though I, you know, am terrified of taking any responsibility for what's wrong, maybe if we kind of bottom out together and if we can grab hold of some of the care and love that we feel, the emotions that we feel underneath that for each other, that even though it's scary and painful and difficult, we'll realize that those statements, though valid at the surface, are not really at the depth and we can plunge the depth and even work through our reluctance to find each other. Because I've seen plenty of couples where it looked like one person was really willing to do the work and the other person was completely reluctant and got dragged into my office or whatever. But when we created enough space and safety for both people to come with their desire and their longing and their hurt and their fear, I found that a lot of times people could tap into a deeper emotion and find a way still to work to reach each other. I get sad when people give up too quickly. I get sad when people like just take that kind of surface feeling and, and, and think that that's the whole truth of a marriage. It, it can be because we'll turn it into that. We'll just listen to that. We'll just, I'm sure plenty of marriages, you know, just completely crash on the rocks because it's really scary to take responsibility for our part and trust the person who matters most in our life at the time to walk with us through that really difficult process. Do you think when we're looking for a mate when we're young, because when we're young, we really don't know, <laughs> we don't know very much. We think we do, but we know zippity doodah. And as you get older, you realize how little you really knew at that time that you, you know, you don't, of course, this is not a conscious response, but we end up marrying one of our parents looking for something that the parent didn't give us in the first place. And that can only lead to disappointment. I think that's true. I think that happens a lot. I, I have a little, a little bit more. My sense is that yes, at some level, that's true. My, my, my research suggests that it, it, it's true. And that though it is often manifesting as the parent, um, perhaps the opposite sex, sex parent, I think that at a deeper level, it's more like marrying into the unresolved family conflict. So whatever wasn't resolved in the family, I find that I find that. And if I'm just going to stay at the kind of feeling surface level, I'll think that I just married my father or my mother. But if we stick together and we walk our way through it, what we'll usually find is underneath that, it's not just I married my father. I didn't just marry my mother. I married into a conflict that never got resolved. And if I'm young, if I'm young, I might give up on that, like I was suggesting, and I might go like try to think, believe that I'm going to find something else. But what I find usually in second marriages is it, it's not really so different. I think people still are making pretty similar decisions, but they're coming in with a much bigger willingness 
to look at that as a, as a dynamic that's getting created between two people and not just the same loser, the same bozo that I married the first time. Yeah, well, <laughs> but that, that means one, at least one of the people is willing to do the work because we, right. we all know people that have been married two or three or maybe even four times and they keep marrying the same person right. over, right. and over, and right. over and over again that's because right. they haven't changed. Well, and yes, and they keep, I think they're also scapegoating that other person for the problems in the marriage. It's the easiest thing in the world to do, to go like, look, no marriage is going to resolve when one of us takes responsibility for everything screwed up. Now, I don't care how bad, well, I do. I mean, there's certain exceptions, obviously. If it's emotional, physical, sexual abuse, there's, forget, I, we don't need to know why we're repeating. We don't need to, that we need to absolutely talk about boundaries. We need to get ourselves out. Right. But, almost, but just about any other conflict that we're dealing with in a marriage, if it's got it, we're only going to make it if we, each one of us, find a way to be together in the solution. Yeah, but let's get away from the marriage. I mean, so we have conflicts and we have, we have friends, we have yeah. relatives, we have co-workers, mm-hmm. we've got business associates. I mean, we've got a whole world of, of different relationships. Yeah, yeah. Um, does the same thing apply to all of them? I think that they do. I think that they play out in, at different levels, though. I think that yeah. you know you can find certain elements of those d- dynamics, and I think that we're really. It, it, it may sound like overly Pollyannish, but I'll say it. I think, in a funny way, we're very fortunate if we have friendships, if we have colleagues, if we have business relationships where we can see some of these dynamics playing out. Because if we can see these dynamics playing out in a friendship, if we see these dynamics playing out, say, between ourselves and our bosses, our colleagues, our uh, people who direct reports, I think if we see these, again, it gives us more power. There's a person who said something brilliant to me. She was a 12-step person. I really respect 12-step work. And this person said to me, she said, you know, Mark, if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. So I think what that means is if I understand the dynamics that I'm bringing into my friendship, into my boss, into my career, into my kids' school right now, as you know, it's just like so insane. I have school-age kids and I mean, it's just boggling my mind how complicated the school is. But if I know something about my dynamic and I know something about what I repeat in relationships, I can do something about it. I can't do anything if I walk into a relationship every time I'm thinking like, oh, why do I keep you know, getting myself all friendly with some person who's going to disrespect me? So yes, I do believe that if we're really fortunate and we're very open-minded that we can ask ourselves like, how am I bringing a problematic dynamic into, the, into each one of my relationships? And if I know that, I can do something about it. Well, I think it's a good thing. You know, I think it's a great thing to try to, to you know, I'm still chewing on that. If I'm not the problem, then there is no solution. Like I um, really like that because that, that comes, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but it comes from a place of power. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's exactly Taking right. responsibility. Yeah. yeah. And a, a lot of people just don't want to do that because it's not easy. It's not easy. Now, the other thing is that doesn't mean this is the trick. This is where it becomes almost ironic. It doesn't mean other people don't also have contributions to the problem. I just can't do anything about theirs. Right. I got yeah. I got to deal with mine, you know. There we go to the boundaries again and the blame yeah. game, you know, let's start to look at yourself and see what you're bringing to the table first. That's right. That's right. And then and I think even to the point of uh, at some point understanding after a lot of hard work I think and and sometimes really rough experience that that's that's a gift I'm giving to myself. 
-hmm. allowing myself to have responsibility for what's right and wrong is, yeah. as you said, it's power. It's, 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 it's the only power in relationship mm -hmm. in some ways. Yes, and the power of saying no and knowing what's going to work for you and what isn't going to work for you is 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 a very powerful thing too because so many women especially, well men too, but people pleasers, you know, yeah. what are they going to do, you know, if I don't if I don't say yes to this, they you know, they're not going to like me anymore, they're not going to ask me out anymore or whatever the case may be. But and you just get yourself so unhappy because you're you're doing all of these things that aren't working for you you're just doing them to be liked and um or to for, keep that's peace. just absolute wrong reason that's right but or to keep the peace you know and i think there's a fine line you know when we talk about you know taking responsibility because that was one of the things i kind of got in trouble for in the marriage counseling therapy was not knowing what was mine and taking on the responsibility for too much. Like, I think there's a flip side. There's, you know, not taking responsibility for anything, but there's also taking responsibility for things that aren't yours. Which might be a good reason. And I'm not being silly. It might be a good reason to lose your keys. Like, cause <laughs> there's nobody more responsible than the person who has the key to the car, to the house, to the office. I mean, I am the responsible one. And if I have a whole ring of keys to everything, as it seems like you did at that time, yep. maybe getting rid of your keys was another way of saying, and like uh, Atlas shrugs, right? <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about your book. Let's talk about your book because I love your book and I actually love all your books. I think we met with your first book or your second book. I think my second one, uh, Relationship Sanity. Yeah. So let's talk about the different books because I think each one of them is, it, they're very different, even though they're written by the same like little triumvirate of smart mm -hmm. guys, they <laughs> kind of hit three different really big issues. So let's talk about the first one. Okay, so the first two were myself, Grant Brenner, and Danny Barry. We wrote the first two books. And the first book is actually about something that we call irrelationship, which is a way of caretaking. I think it's what you described, Sandra, that actually disallows other people from taking care of us. It's a psychological defense against allowing ourselves to be intimate and empathetic and vulnerable and invested in our relationship. And the second book, Relationship Sanity, was about the solution to that, which is actually kind of simple. It's creating a balance in the loving and being loved, in the giving and receiving. But because it's sort of formed this relationship as a psychological defense against the anxieties that come along with being vulnerable, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing. And then the third book is, it, it has a silly title, but it's actually like a, the, the kind of depth psychology. It's called, <clears throat> don't be a dick. And it's really, but it's really about understanding how if we're not careful, our behavior can be an invitation to other people to mistreat us. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving all kinds of pleas. I'm, I have a very, very, very open, compassionate uh, take on people who walk around with this jerky, mean, narcissistic behavior, begging them to put their defenses down so they can have a different relationship with the world so they can allow themselves to let people know them, care for them, love them. So they kind of all have a theme, right? There's a theme of having a different relationship with the world. As I said, the world being represented by other people and our relationships. What do you think, Linda? Pretty cool, huh? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and it, it, they're all, it's all connected. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, I don't know, I think there's one thing that just came into my head too, you know, every, you know, back in the day, and maybe they still do it now is just soulmate or, you know, 
there's one person that that's just right for you and mm-hmm. and um or in the or in the movie Jerry Maguire you complete me mm-hmm. um I think the things that annoy us most in maybe our mates or maybe our friends are the things that annoy us most about ourselves that we see in them. And it like, it's a little trigger that, Mm -hmm. oh my God, look at that stupid thing she's doing. But Jesus, I do the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually, yeah, yeah. It's one of the, uh, in the category of D-I-C-K, it's, it's, it's called projection and it's, yes. you know, it's like, I see in you what I can't stand in myself. Yes. <laughs> you <know? Yeah>. So <laughs> your soulmate for me is actually the person that makes you look in the mirror and take a good look at yourself. Right. Not That's the one right. that says you're perfect, but right. oh my God, look what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> I, I believe that. I, I, I really, I, I, I got my, I got my soulmate here in the other room taking care of the children right now. And believe, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> she lets you know right <laughs> she lets you know. she, and thank and thank goodness she does you know i mean i'm so grateful especially right now in the lockdown you know raising children uh, we've got practices here you know i got wonderful people who invite me to do things like this it's so exciting you know and it's really really important to have somebody who's got our back who isn't just you know, stroking us, who isn't, who's being honest with us and telling challenging us and, and helping us to be our best version of ourselves, which includes an honest reflection, you know, I mean, it really, absolutely, yeah, you know, to do so. So we're going to wrap up today's show. We can find your books at Amazon. We can find them really anywhere books are sold. I've, I've walked into the bookstores, not recently because of lockdown, but um, I've been able to go in and see your book. I know this guy. I know this guy. This is a good book. You should buy it. Um, but I'm going to end with this, Mark. I want you to give people one, one just piece of advice on how, how best to care for your relationship with all these changes, with lockdown, with the political anxiety going on in our country, with the social media drama, what one thing can you recommend that couples do that can help them during this time? If you have ever loved a cat, if you have (laughs) ever loved a fish, if you have ever loved a dog, if you have ever loved a child, treat your relationship like a third entity between you. Let your relationship be that third thing, not you, not me, but us, and commit yourself to caring for that third thing the way you would care for your most cherished child, friend, pet, whatever inspires the most thoughtful, kind, generous, loving response from you. Do everything you can to treat your relationship like something you love. It's not just your partner who's either pleasing or pissing you off. It's your relationship, something that has life, that you and your partner birthed together. It has life. The more you love and care and are kind and generous to that third thing that are the two of you, the more that will flourish and grow and develop into something that will open you, will crack you open to you know, to an ability to really get into what we call relationship sanity, which is allowing yourself to love and be loved. Love that. Dr. Mark. Good advice. Yep. (laughs) Check out his books. He's got three of them, Relationship Sanity. Uh, What was the other one? Ear Ear, ear Relationship. 
air relationship. Yeah. Yes, air relationship. And the my favorite title, the Don't Be a Dick book. That's always fun because I can say <laughs> a naughty word and just enjoy every minute of it. Yeah. We'll be back again next week with another great episode. Thank you. Cowbonga. <laughs> <laughs>From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they'd always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. 